Okay, so today we're going to be doing introduction to absorption processes, and the reason that I'm reviewing this is because I'm interested in the potential for utilizing absorption as an AFFF or a PFAS contamination backup plan. So basically, if we had a release, how could I capture it and how could I absorb it to particles that could then be properly repaired, replaced or excavated from the material liner? So we're going to do a review of absorption processes and see if my assumptions are correct. Based on our previous discussions of how molecular interactions affect partitioning, it makes sense that structurally identical molecules behave very differently if they are in the gas phase or surrounded by water molecules and ions, as opposed to clinging onto the exterior of solids or being buried within a solid matrix. And again, I'm thinking of using a kaolinite or a bentonite subgrade liner with um, organic carbon overlays. So Olva Olni, GAC, or some other absorption like coconut byproduct um, to be able to get that, that absorption quantity out of the water and into something solid that I can change out. Therefore, absorption to condensed phases from water or air is extremely important because it can dramatically affect the fate and impacts of chemicals in the environment. For example, the environmental transport of waterborne molecules obviously differs from the movements of the same kind of molecules attached to particles that settle. Also, transport of a given compound in porous media such as soils, sediments, and aquifers is strongly influenced by the compound's tendency to absorb to the various components of the solid matrix. Additionally, only dissolved molecules are available to collide with the interfaces of other environmental compartments such as the atmosphere. Thus, phase transfers are controlled by the dissolved species of the chemical. Similarly, since molecular transfer is a prerequisite for the uptake of organic pollutants by organisms, the bioavailability of a given compound and thus its rate of biotransformation or its toxic effects are affected by absorption processes. Furthermore, some absorbed molecules are substantially shaded from incident light. Therefore, these molecules may not experience direct photolysis processes. Moreover, when present inside solid matrices, they may never come in contact with short-lived solution phase photooxidants like OH radicals. Finally, since the chemical nature of aqueous solutions in solid environments differ greatly, for example, pH redox conditions, various chemical reactions, including hydrolysis or redox reactions, may occur at very different rates in absorbed and dissolved states. Hence, we must understand solid solution and solid gas phase exchange phenomena before we can quantify virtually any other processes affecting the states of organic chemicals in the environment. Um, so we have some examples here. We have some figures. The first is an air-water partition with absorbed organic molecules settling with particles and dissolved inorganic or organic molecules colliding with the air-water interface and volatilizing. Then we expose that same system to sunlight and we add a bio process. So then we see that dissolved organic molecules are more accessible to light. So other dissolved chemicals and microorganisms can absorb and interact with those materials, as well as the direct air-water partition. And then we have various sorbent-sorbate interactions, which possibly could control the association of a chemical with natural solids. So for the purposes of this, we look at 3,4-dimethylaniline, which is acid-base equilibrium in solution. So we can see that in solution and equilibrium, it's both absorbing and desorbing in the solid phase and solution phase at the same rate. So we see a reactive moiety absorbent that's covalently bound to the surface group. That's an end moiety. And then we have a charged sorbate that's electrostatically attached to oppositely charged surface sites. So that would be an ammonia charged to an oxygen. So ammonia is positive, and then the oxygen is negative. We have a couple hydroxyl radicals. These are called ionizable surface groups. And then we have some sorbate that's adsorbing to a mineral surface. Um, so these are all examples of different sorbing reactions. And then finally, we have a natural sorbate which escapes into natural organic matter. That's an NH2 or a nitrate. I forget if nitrate is NH3. 
think that's nitrate. Okay, so forget that. It's a nitrite. NH2 is nitrite. NH3 is a nitrate. Ammonia is NH4. Um, unfortunately, when we're dealing with natural environments, sorption is often not an exchange between one homogeneous solution of vapor phase and a single well-defined condensed medium, as we discussed in part two. Rather, in an environmental system, some combinations of interactions govern the association of a particular chemical called desorbate with any particular solid or mixture of solids called desorbents. So we just talked a little bit about all the different types of desorbate reactions that 3,4-dimethylanoline in an aquatic system can have. So at the moment, 3,4-dimethylanoline is a weak base with a pKa of 5.28. So it can form 3,4-dimethyl ammonium cations. Oh, I got it right. Right the first time. Okay. Um, and for the fraction of molecules that remain uncharged, this organic compound may escape the water by penetrating natural organic matter with a hydroxyl or an ionizable surface group or a reactive surface group. There's lots of choices. So they can be held there by London dispersive and polar interactions. Um, and these types of sorption mechanisms are nonspecific, so they'll operate for any organic chemical and any natural solid. Additionally, since the sorbate is ionizable in the aqueous solution, then electrostatic attraction to specific surface sites exhibiting the opposite charge will promote sorption to the ionic species. Finally, should the sorbate and the sorbent exhibit mutually reactive moieties, for example, a carbonyl group in, on the sorbent and an amino group on the sorbate, some portion of the chemical may actually become bonded to the solid. All of these interaction mechanisms operate simultaneously, and the combination that dominates the overall solution, solid distribution, depends on the structural properties of the organic sorbate and the solid sorbent of interest. So sorption isotherms and isotherms and solid water equilibrium distribution coefficient, or K sub ID. So we have some relationships here. We're looking at the relationship between concentrations of a chemical in the sorb state, or C sub IS, and the dissolved state, or C sub IW. These similar relationships apply to the sorptions of gaseous compounds to solid sorbents, but it looks like we'll be dealing primarily with aqueous solutions here. So it looks like there are six main relationships. There's a graph, typical XY graph, in the first relationship, we have straight linear. In the second, we have an increasing phase. It looks like a logarithmic phase, but it has no uh, azimuth. In the third phase, we have increasing logarithmic with an azimuth. It looks just like a population graph. In the fourth relationship, we have a very, very steep initial portion followed by a break and a change to a linear relationship. So steep, steep, steep increase, and then acceleration abruptly changes, uh, and then goes into a steady linear state. Um, our next relationship looks like a natural logarithm. So we've got um, slow increase followed by an acceleration change, which steeply rises the curve. And then we have a sigmoidal relationship as our last one, and that's the classic S-curve. So it looks just like a pH uh, isotherm. So those are all the relationships it looks like we're going to be dealing with, and we're looking at aqueous primarily. So when we're interested in describing the equilibrium distribution of a chemical among the solids and solutions present in any particular volume of an aquatic environment, we begin by considering how the total sorbed concentration of the chemical C sub IS in mole kilogram, moles per kilogram solid is dependent on its concentration in the solution, or C sub IW, in moles per liter. The relationship of these two concentrations is commonly referred to as desorption isotherm. The name isotherm indicates the sorption relationship only applies at a constant temperature. In the following discussion, we consider only absorption from aqueous solution, but this can still apply to gas phase when interacting with solid states. So the same equation, we would just substitute subscript W for an A. Just a little bit confusing, right? Experimentally determined sorption isotherms exhibit a variety of shapes for different combination of sorbates and sorbents. 
as used in chapter 11 when discussing adsorption to surfaces, the simplest case is the one in which the affinity of the sorbate for the sorbent remains the same over the observed concentration range. Thus, this is a linear isotherm case. Case applies to situations where partitioning into a homogeneous organic phase is dominating the overall absorption or concentrations are sufficiently low so that the strongest adsorption sites are far from being saturated. The second type of isotherm behavior reflects those situations at which higher sorbate concentrations, less additional molecules sorbed to the sorbent, such as when binding sites become filled or the remaining sites are less attractive to the sorbate molecules. In extreme case, above some maximum C sub IS value, all sites are saturated and no more additional absorption is possible. So this is like the gently climbing logarithmic scale. Um, this is also important for enzyme interaction. So the biochemical enzymatic processes also follow number two case or B case. And then when you get to saturation point, that's where the bioreaction no longer occurs because the enzymes are fully loaded or they can't get rid of their substrate. Isotherms of the type shown in figures 12B and C describe experimental studies of adsorption processes to organic and inorganic surfaces. So this deals specifically with activated carbon and clay mineral surfaces, which is the key physical driver that I'm thinking about exploiting for our PFAC issue. So of course, in a soil or sediment, more than one important sorbent may be present. Therefore, the overall absorption isotherm may reflect the superposition of several individual isotherms that are characteristic for each specific type of sorbent. When such a mixed case involves an adsorbent exhibiting a limited number of sites with a high affinity for the sorbate that dominates the overall absorption of low concentrations, for example, soot clay mineral type C isotherm plus a partitioning process predominating at higher concentrations, for example, into natural organic matter, type A isotherm, then a mixed isotherm best describes the data. So we do want to encourage biological growth in this pond um, because the carbon, I'm more interested in the carbon itself than I am in the bioaccumulation. So when the carbon dies and it starts lining the bottom of the pond, that would be a great location to increase higher sorbent concentrations. So it's increasing the number of surface, the amount of surface area available for sorbent. Another case encountered less frequently in experimental studies involves a situation in which previously sorbent molecules lead to a modification of the sorbent, which favors further sorption. Um, obviously, this would be the best case for our pond, right? Studies reporting such sorbent modifications usually involve anionic or cationic surfactants as sorbates. In some of these cases, a sigmoidal isotherm shape has been observed, indicating that the sorption-promoting effect only starts after a certain loading of the sorbent. In summary, depending on the composition of a natural bulk sorbent and on the chemical nature of the sorbate, multiple sorption mechanisms can act simultaneously, and the resulting isotherms may have a variety of different shapes. However, it is not possible to prove a particular absorption mechanism applies from the shape of the isotherm. Instead, the isotherm type and its degree of nonlinearity must be consistent with absorption mechanisms prevailing in a given situation. So obviously, we want type E or type F. But I don't know how that's possible yet. We may not be able to get it. A very common mathematical approach for fitting experimentally determined absorption data using a minimum of adjustable parameters employs an empirical relationship known as the Flundlich isotherm. So that's a concentration sub IS equals K sub IF times C sub IW raised to NI, where K sub IF is the Flundlich constant or capacity factor with units in equation 12-1 of mole per kilogram mole per liter raised to negative N1, and N1 is the Flundlich exponent. For a correct thermodynamic treatment of equation 12-1, we would always have to use dimensionless partitioning constants of compound I in both absorbed and aqueous phase in order to obtain a dimensionless K sub IF. However, in practice, C sub IS and C sub IW are expressed in a variety of concentration units. 
Therefore, KIF is commonly reported in the corresponding units, which also means that for n not equal to 1, KIF depends non-linearly on the units in which CIW is expressed. The relationship in equation 12.1 assumes that multiple types of absorption sites act in parallel with each site, site type exhibiting a different sorption-free energy and total site abundance. The Frundlich exponent is an index of the diversity of the free energies associated with absorption of the solid solute by multiple components of a heterogeneous sorbent. For the special case of Ni equal to 1, the isotherm is linear. When we denote constant sorption-free energies at all sorbate concentrations with the concentration-independent distribution coefficient of Kid, which is also referred to as the partition coefficient and denoted as Kip, the concentration of sorb materials is equal to K times C of concentration of non-sorb materials, which equals Kip times Ciw. And we can see that the graphic representation of the Frundlich isotherm uh, flattens. So n is, when n is greater than 1, we have our almost vertical linear relationship. When n is equal to 1, we have about a 90 degree relationship on a log. Um, so this is an xy graph with log is, or um, concentration of absorbed materials to the log of CW, this is concentration of non-sorbed materials. And then as N decreases or becomes less than 1, you can see the linear relationship flattening. And again, this is almost just like our enzymatic processes in biochemistry, so that's neat. So we can deduce from experimental data by using linear regression of the logarithmic form. So uh, we've got log CIS is equal to N times log CIW plus log KIF, where the units of KIF, again, depend on the units of CIW and on the exponent N1, Ni. If a given isotherm is not well described by 12-3, then some assumptions behind the Frundlich multi-site conceptualizations are not going to work. For example, if only a limited number of the total absorption sites become saturated, then CIS cannot increase indefinitely with increasing CIW. In this case, the Langmuir isotherm may be a more appropriate model. So a limited number of total absorption sites have become saturated, which I think is probably what's going to happen with our PFAS model. So here we have equation 12-4, and we've got the Langmuir isotherm times CIW times KIL over 1 plus CIW times KIL, where the Langmuir isotherm represents the total number of surface sites per mass of absorbent. It's going to be very different, though, so this would be very difficult to use in situ. Ka is commonly referred to as the Langmuir constant, and it is defined as the equilibrium constant of the absorption reaction. So essentially, we have the surface site plus the sorbate in aqueous solution, yielding the sorbate. We are implying that a constant sorbate affinity for all surface sites exists, but as we know, that's not always the case. Um, and we can use the slope and intercept to extract estimates of the isotherm constants. So we do have an interesting hybrid model here. Many cases, such as D and F, those are our sigmoidal isotherm relationships, um, cover a very large concentration range and can't be described solely by a linear, a Frudlich, or even a Langmuir equation. And in these cases, we can use a hybrid. That hybrid, called a distributed reactivity model, has a simple case which involves a pair absorption mechanisms involving absorption, for example, the linear isotherm with partition coefficient k, and site-limited adsorption, or the Langmuir isotherm. So this hybrid can also be described as a combination of a linear and a Frundlich isotherm. It's also known as dual-mode models, and that they've been quite good at fitting experimental data for nat natural sorbents 
that contain compound components exhibiting a limited number of highly active adsorption sites in addition to components in which an organic compound may absorb, which may be appropriate if we use um, organics like ova ulnae or coconut sh shreddings. At low concentrations, the Langmuir or Fudlicher term may dominate the overall isotherm, while at high concentrations, the absorption term would dominate. To assess the extent to which a compound is associated with solid phases in a given system of equilibrium, we need to know the ratio of the compound's total equilibrium concentration for the solid and in the aqueous solution. As mentioned earlier, we denote this solid water distribution coefficient as k to the id. Um, and there are several equations, derivations that we'll go through. I won't read them because that's excruciatingly painful, um, but essentially we're just looking at ratios. And then we're controlling for the number of sites, bonding sites. Um, so it's very, very simple. Well, the equations are simple. The complex nature of KID. The prediction of KID for any particular combination of organic, chemical, and solids in the environment can be quite complicated. But fortunately, many situations can be reduced to fairly simple limiting cases. We begin by emphasizing that the way we define KD means that we may have lumped together several different forms of a given compound I in each phase. For example, referring again we, to our 3,4-dimethylaniline, we recognize that the total concentration of the compound in the sorb phase must combine the contributions of molecules in many different sorb forms. Additionally, the solution even contains both a neutral and a charged species of this chemical. So we have a distribution ratio where we essentially have to look at the carbon of the material times the carbon fractionation, or the organic carbon partition constant, plus the carbon concentration minimum times surface area times, oh my gosh, there's a lot of stuff in here. So we have to take into account the concentration absorbent I associated with natural organic matter expressed as organic carbon. We have to take together the fraction, the weight fraction of solid, which is natural organic matter expressed as organic carbon. The concentration absorbate I, which is associated with mineral surfaces, specific surface area of relevant solids, concentration of ionized sorbate drawn towards the position or the opposite charge on the solid surface. So this would be like cation exchange capacity. The net concentration of suitably charged sites on the solid surface for ion exchange. The concentration of sorbate I bonded in a reversible reaction to the solid. The concentration of reactive sites on the solid surface in mole reaction sites per meter squared, which I would, how on earth would you estimate that for something like a clay or something like a granular activated carbon? That, that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, concentration of uncharged chemical in solution in moles per liter and concentration of charged chemical in solution in moles per liter. And this is interesting because our PFAS is going to have both neutral and ionic forms. If we catch the neutral, well, if we catch the ionic, we probably won't catch the neutral um, because how would we physically absorb it? I don't know. Um, but there are a variety of different forms of organic matter that can include, that can encourage adsorption and absorption mechanisms. And these can include living biomass of microorganisms, partially degraded organic matter from plants, plastic debris from humans, um, and there may be a linear combination of interactions with several mineral surfaces present in a particular soil or sediment with a single sorbate. Thus, a soil consisting of montmolarite, kaolinite, iron oxide, and quartz mineral deposits may actually have um, different area fractions exhibited by each mineral type. And similarly, our concentrations may bond to different kinds of surface moieties, each with its own reactivity to the sorbate. So this is interesting. So we know that PFAS likes to accumulate in fatty tissues um, that's why it's bonded to the liver and the kidney. And the liver and kidney also include high mineral content. So it could be an interesting idea to make a montmorillonite or a bentonite clay liner with high mineral reactivity, right? It's got its iron oxides, it's got all kinds of cool stuff. 
um, silicates. Uh, and then also encourage the growth of um, the same microbes that create biofuels. So something in an oil, uh, which would potentially capture neutral PFAS. That's an interesting thought. I really like that idea. So you could essentially sequester neutral PFAS into microorganisms that would produce a biofuel um, fatty type. I don't remember what microorganisms do that. I think it's a blue-green algae. But it wouldn't have to be very much. Um, and it would screw up the gap. So you'd probably have to run like two separate treatment processes. You could run the first process for ionic and try and capture whatever was in it immediately. But then the long term could be essentially growing the bioreactor. And then as soon as the biofuel came to the top, you could harvest that um, as PFAS contaminated biofuel. I think they're aerobic type. But I'm not sure. Um, so, anyway, back at the ranch. To properly apply our equation, it's important to realize that any one exchange process only involves particular combinations of species in the numerator and denominator. For example, in the case of absorption of dimethylaniline to natural absorbents, exchanges between the solution and the solid phase organic matter reflect establishing the same potential of the uncharged DNA species in the water and in the particulate natural organic phase. As a result, a single free energy change in associated equilibrium constant applies to the absorption reaction. So here we see an aniline in water, and we see it trying to react with organic matter, and then we see that it needs a minimum surface area to be able to glob on to its reaction site, just like an enzyme. So such specific binding to a particular solid phase moiety may prevent rapid desorption and therefore such sorbate solid associations may cause part or all of the desorption process to appear irreversible on some time scale of interest. Isn't that interesting? So at the end of the day, you end up with the aniline losing its hydrogen and you've got it double bonded to something on its reaction site. Um, and it may appear irreversible. So it's not like enzymatic processes, right? Because enzymes are reversible. There are plenty of chemical reactions that are not enzymatically driven, but are still biochemical and irreversible. Huh, how interesting. In addition to absorptive interactions, which only uncharged DNA species is directly involved, the charged DNA species, or the anilinium ions, is involved in processes such as ion exchange. So here we see an anilinium ion, which is plus NH3, and that is in water, and it is trying to find an exchange site with a sister molecule. And of course, the anilinium ion in solution is quantitatively related to the neutral aniline species via an acid-base reaction having its own equilibrium constant. So acid-base, neutral aniline. Interesting. We emphasize that the solid sol solution solid exchange shown in this figure has to be described using the appropriate equilibrium expression relating corresponding species in each phase. Okay, I don't know what that means, but I'm sure it's very important. The influence of each sorption mechanism is ultimately reflected by these equilibrium in the overall KID expression, and each is weighted by the availability of the respective sorbent properties in the heterogeneous solid. By combining information on the individual equilibria with the absorbent properties, we can develop versions of complex KD expression that take into account the structure of the chemical we are considering. We're going to discuss individual equilibrium relationships a little bit later, 
but we've got to take a look at the effects absorption on speciation, which is sorbed versus dissolved or gaseous, and then on some transport processes before we do that. So we're going to look at retardation in porous media and sedimentation from a water or air column. Now there's a butt-ton of math here, and I'm not going to read all that because woof. Um, but moral of the story, we have to consider speciation of a neutral organic compound in environmental aqueous system containing only solids and water. So that's a perfect description of our little pond, right? And our PFAS. So we need a fraction of the compound dissolved in water by volume. We need the mass of solids present in that total volume. And now we need a solid to water phase ratio in kilograms per liter in the environmental compartment of interest. And that's going to be a function of KID and the ratio we just solved for. So if the substance exhibits a great affinity for solids, it will have a large K value, KID value. If there's a large amount of solid per volume of water, there will be a large value of R sub SW. We can predict that small fractions of the chemical will remain dissolved in water. So particulate form must be given by equation 1219, and we assume that no other phases are present. So if I wanted to test my beautiful PFAS theory, it looks like this is how I would set it up. So we would probably need to do a box model using speciation, retardation, and sedimentation. And we're probably going to have to account for the clay and the bottom surface. So we need the fraction of the total volume that's not occupied by solids, which is going to be the porosity. And we're going to have to characterize the solid to water phase ratio as a sediment bed. So we're going to take away the gas phase, and we're going to look at volume occupied by particles, which is calculated from m sub s over p sub s, which is the density of solids typically near 2.5 kilograms per liter for many natural minerals. Um, and then we're going to solve for RSW. This is going to describe the solid weight water mixtures with the approximations for dilute systems. But we don't need an open system, we need a closed system, because we want to keep this in there. So we'll need the bulk density, which is P or rho sub B. Um, and we can use either R sub SW sigma or rho, depending on which numbers we can actually get. Which argues also for the use of bentonite kaolinite clay because that would give us a pretty clear idea of estimation of porosity, right? Because kaolinite and bentonite are so commonly used. So it might be a good benchmark for us. So we're going to consider some groundwater situations. I don't think this is typically applicable for us. We've got some aquifer solids with a density of about 2.5 kilograms per liter and a sigma of porous media between 0.2 and 0.4. Um, and then we insert our values into equation 12-22 to get an R sub SW value. And then the fractional or fraction coefficient as a function of K expressed in liters per kilogram is equation 12-124. Um, so this is our speciation information. Speciation is important because we know that KD value for, we want to know what the KID value is and then we want to apply it for a particular chemical of concern. So let's apply it for PCE in the case of the book. And we know that since aquifer materials usually contain very little organic matter, which is the main sorbent for this kind of compound, we can see that insertion of a KID value, which is solved for, yields an FIW, or a fractional coefficient, of about 0.09. That's really low, right? Only one PCE molecule out of 11 will be in moving groundwater at any instant. And this is important because it means that the fate of PCE in the subsurface environment will be dictated by desorptive exchange between the aquifer solids and the water. And if it's fast, great, we can pull it. If it's slow, um, it'll take a really long time. And if it's reversible, we can conclude that PCE will just keep coming back, right? Because it's never going to stay put. 
Um, so we can see that it's fast relative to groundwater flow, and if resorption is reversible, we can conclude that all PCE molecules move at 1 11th the rate of the water. The phenomenon of diminished chemical transport speed relative to the water seepage velocity is referred to as retardation. This is a retardation factor, or RFI, which is simply equal to the reciprocal of the fraction of molecules capable of moving with the flow at any instant, which is the inverse of FIW. Um, so the retardation of PCE is 11. Uh, let's see, we've got organic matter in lakes is usually higher. Uh, we've got a very low absorption percentage of PCE for this example. Sedimentation, that is the removal by sinking particles, can be an important process for given organic pollutant in the water column. However, large, however, how large must the fraction of said pollutant be in particulate form in order for sedimentation to be of importance? To answer this question, we consider a well-mixed water body, such as the epilimnon of a lake, which can be described by the one-box model introduced in Chapter 6. We recall that in this simple approach, we express all processes as first-order reactions characterized by a first-order reaction constant. I find it very comforting that we always end up at first order reactions. I mean, I just find that like one of those stable forms of the universe where like, if you don't know what to do, you just pick a first order rate, re rate reaction. Um, I just, I just find that deeply soothing, you know? So we're back at first order rate reactions. Um, and we're looking at first order removal rate constant of sedimentation in the compound KSD, where we compare that to the K of water. Uh, and this is this is just the portion of Navier-Stokes that refers to first order rate. That's all it is. So flux F of S per unit area of particles out of the epilimnon of the lake is then given by another equation, which is flux. That's just the normal flux equation. And then divide that by volume, which yields the first order order particle removal rate constant K of S. Oh man, I love it when things just make sense. Look at that, we're back We're back to the flux equation and we're back to first order rate removals. And we've got the fraction in particulate form, which is just a variation on Navier-Stokes. I love it. And I didn't have to do any derivations whatsoever, so suck it, fluid mechanics. Suck it. I did not like that class. Um, okay, so let's talk about some questions. Let's see what we get. So give five reasons why it's important to know to what extent a given chemical is present in absorbed form in a natural or engineered system. Um, one, you know, if you know how much of a chemical is absorbed, you know its rate reaction, so you know if it's going to be unsorbed. You know its transport kinetics, so you know if it's going to flow or stay where it's at using the retardation factor. Um, you know its partition coefficients, so if you know the zorb, you know potentially how much is non-zorbed and is freely flowable. The, you also know, well, if you know the zorbed concentrations, you can probably figure out how that is, what other reactions are going on. So, for example, if you do a linear regression and you find like a sigmoidal curve, then you're probably going to be dealing with some organic interactions anaerobic type, or you're going to be dealing with some surface area changes. So, for example, you might start off with a chemical absorbing to inorganic clay minerals, and then because of the increased carbon, like they dump a whole bunch of microbes in there and they start dying and they create other physical absorption mechanisms, both add and absorption like on their bodies as well as in their metabolites, um, then you're going to be able to see some different reactions happening on a sigmoidal curve. And number five, um, you can estimate surface area for absorption capacity, right? So if you know how much of the chemical is absorbed, you can make some pretty good estimates about whether or not that absorption capacity will be enough to contain the chemical or if you're going to need to add absorption sites, adsorption sites, like say change out your GAC filter or change out your IX.
What are the most important natural absorbance and absorption mechanisms for apolar compounds, polar compounds, and ionized compounds? So apolar compounds, natural absorbance and absorption mechanisms, I assume would have to be absorption because apolar compounds wouldn't have the ability to necessarily absorb. They wouldn't be attracted by the, chemical, the electrochemical difference. So we'd be looking at absorption. Um, and that would mean like a chelation process or maybe bioaccumulation or a metabolic accumulation or a metabolic change of some kind for polar compounds, apolar compounds. For polar compounds, um, water is gonna be an aqueous medium, so you can easily keep it ionic, right? You can, you can exploit the electrochemical differences to be able to bond it to other hydrogens or hydroxyl radicals, so that can be an absorption mechanism. Or if it's polar, you can also extrapolate some limited affinity for uh, adsorption electrochemical sites. If you have like a cation exchange capacity or if you have a highly positive or negative site, you may be able to pull some of it, though not as much as an ionized compound. So an ionized compound would definitely be adsorption. Uh, and that adsorption, that's the clays, that's the ulva ulni, that's the IX, that's where you can really extrapolate or really exploit the electrochemical differences. What is absorption isotherm? Absorption isotherm is when you keep the temperature constant, but you change the amount of concentrate per surface area. So you can either increase this number of surface area bonding sites, or you can increase the number of or the concentration of material. But you have to do one or the other, and then you have to keep the temperature uh, constant. Types of absorption isotherms may be encountered to organic to natural absorbents. So for this one, it's probably not going to be linear, right? Like absorbents to organic substances are going to be very rarely linear. So here we're going to see that sigmoidal pattern where you have a sharp increase followed by zero acceleration, like um, zero acceleration followed by a decrease. Um, and then you also have your natural log rhythmic expansion. And you may have a logarithmic pattern depending on the number of active sites that you have available. The shape of absorption isotherm can tell you about the absorption mechanism if it's in a laboratory setting, but I think that if you're actually trying to extrapolate data, then there are probably several different mechanisms going on, and so you wouldn't necessarily be able to get good data uh, by just looking at your graph. Because everything's going to have organics in it, right? And everything's going to have like that hybrid isotherm model. So you can't just look at the graph. The graph can give you a hint, but the absorption mechanism is probably going to be a hybrid in the field. Um, we're talking about mathematical expressions, and basically we're at first-order reaction kinetics, and we've got a little bit like the first half of Navier-Stokes without all the derivations in it because fuck you, fluid mechanics. Um, and we've got some partitioning, but I'm not going to go through all that because it's boring. Which environmental parameters and compound properties determine the fraction and dissolve form of a neutral organic compound and an ionizable organic compound in aquifer? How is the retardation factor of a compound in an aquifer defined and what exactly does it describe? Okay, so that's basically just reading off the math and I'm not going to do that because it's boring. Uh, but neutral organic is fraction organic compound and ionizable organic compound in an aquifer is going to change based off of the surface area and the interaction. So the neutral organic carbon kind of stays the same, I think, and the ionizable fraction of organic compound has to be estimated using surface area adjustments and volume adjustments, which is not true. Retardation factor describes how fast the chemical of interest moves relative to the water. So if the water is leaving at one foot per second, 
and PCE has a retardation factor of 11, then the PCE would only be moving 11% as fast as the water itself. So purely rel relative. Which environmental parameters and compound properties determine the rate at which a compound is removed from a water body by sedimentation? Oh, that's Navier-Stokes, right? So, well, the physical act. So you have to look at how the chemical bonds to the sediment and then how fast or how large the sediment is to be able to drop out of the water body into the bottom sedimentation. So that requires uh, organic compound desorption mechanics. Uh, if it's ionic or polar or whatever. So we have that lovely equation from like 12-16, um, which is neutral. And then we have the porosity, which can characterize the ratio of RSW for the solid to water phase ratio in sediment beds. Um, and then we can pull that based off of the sedimentation of the particle in question just Navier-Stokes. So we can use 12-24 to estimate the fraction of compound in water as a function of KID, which is expressed in liters per kilogram, um, and then run the size of the particle. Then we ask, they ask for a derivation of 12-28 to 12-29. Nope. I don't do derivations because gross. Mm, so we've got an interesting problem here. Common way to measure KID values is to measure isotherms in batch experiments. To this end, the equilibrium concentrations of a given compound in the solid phase and the aqueous phase are determined at various compound concentrations and or solid water ratios. Consider the adsorption of 1,4-dinitrobenzene to a homeoionic clay mineral, K-positive iolite. 1,4-DNB forms electron donor acceptor complexes with the clay minerals. In a series of batch experiments, Hagerling measured the data at pH 7.0 and 20 degrees C given in the margin and plotted the figure. Using this data, estimate the KID values for 1,4-DNB for equilibrium concentrations of 1,4-DNB in the aqueous phase of 0.2 micromoles and 15 micromoles, respectively. Derive the appropriate isotherms for estimating these KID values. So here you have a very lovely logarithmic pattern, which looks a lot like, I think, our fourth case. Third case at the beginning of the chapter. So this is a type C isotherm. Mixed case involving an adsorbent exhibiting a limited number of sites with high affinity for the sorbate that dominates the overall sorption at low concentration. So that sounds like a mineral to me. Interesting. I know I'm not supposed to use the graph type to develop the sorbent requirement, but I'm going to do it anyway. Hmm. Another interesting one. Due to runoff from streets, a series of pHs have been detected in drinking water originating from an aquifer containing very little organic carbon. Therefore, it can be assumed that primarily adsorbed mineral surfaces determines how fast these compounds are transported in the aquifer. Using the surface normalized Ki surface water values given in the margin, estimate the retardation factor of our companion compound phenanthrene, phenanthrene in this aquifer from which you have the following information. The average porosity is 0.3. The aquifer solids consist of 95% quartz at a density of 2.65 grams per milliliter. Surface area is 1 meter squared per gram. 4% kaolinite, density of 2.6 grams per milliliter. Surface area 10 meters squared per gram. And 1% iron oxide, density 3.5 grams per milliliter. And surface area is 50 meters. Whoa! Iron oxide with a surface area of 50 meters squared per gram with an organic carbon content less than 
Average temperature is 10 degrees C and the pH is 7. Wow. It's like iron oxides is a way to sediment this out. I wonder if that's why the algal blooms in the Southern Ocean are so productive. It's because you've got this tremendous surface area for all the little critters to bind onto. There's a lot for them to chew on. It's very interesting. After an accident in early summer, an unknown amount of our companion compound, PCB153, was introduced into the epilimnon of our mystery model lake. Land. As the owner of an environmental analytical lab, you were offered the job to monitor the concentrations of this compound in the epilimnon of Mystery Lake during the summer. At the end of August, you looked at your data and realized that after 46 days, the total concentration of PCV-153 had dropped to one-fourth of its initial total concentration. A colleague of yours claims that the elimination of the compound was only due to flushing. Is this person correct? If not, are there other significant elimination processes and how important are they as compared to flushing? Since you've already read chapter six, you know that unlike for PCE, gas exchange is not a major removal compound mechanism for this compound from the epilimnon of Mystery Lake. You also assume that under the oxic conditions prevailing in the epilimnon, PCV153 is quite persistent to any transformation reaction. Hence, only elimination by sedimentation could be important. Is this a reasonable assumption? Calculate the KID value that would be necessary to account for the additional elimination by assuming the lake parameters used earlier and compare your result with an estimate of your colleague who tells you that for PCV 153, you should expect a KID between 10, 4, 10 raised to the fourth and five times 10 to the fourth liters per kilogram. This is an example of a linear removal. So with a constant organic rate and a neutral or nonpolar molecule, it will bond only according to the fractionation of organic carbon, which is linear. Oh, that's cool. That's very cool.